Uh, and if you would, join me in prayer, please. Gracious Father, precious Son, ever-present Holy Spirit, be with us now as we consider your word. Uh, Lord, help us to hear, believe. Lord, I decrease that you may increase. Be glorified. Amen. Uh, this evening, brothers and sisters, as I had said earlier, we will be discussing discipline, church discipline. Uh, brothers and sisters, if you're anything like me, when I was growing up, uh, when a person was found to be living in sin, the church did not have the practice of corporately gathering together to make judgment on that person. As a matter of fact, judgment was probably a word that would never be used if someone was found to be in sin. The sin of that individual was talked about, but it was more in the form of gossip and in order to shame. There was uh, there was no turning that person over to Satan. Uh, there was not even a talk of restoration if someone was found. The church, and church in general, when I was growing up, was viewed as being more personal than corporate. Meaning that if someone was in sin, that was their personal issue. It had nothing to do with the and it was the church's business. We corporately gathered, but your personal life and practicing accountability to elders and to fellow congregational members, non-existent. It may be for this reason that some of us find it hard or difficult, again, because of our more private than corporate. And therefore, that which is done in the secret remains in the secret. Brothers and sisters, uh, we must confess, as we did this morning, that some of the ways that we have been taught have been incorrect. Today, with God's help, some lessons from the apostles, the apostle Paul's interaction with the church of Corinth in matter of church discipline. We will consider ten lessons and then conclude with some practical applications. Uh, before we go into those ten lessons, uh, let's take a moment to define. These are some subpoints. What is church discipline? Church discipline is one part of a discipleship process in the church. It is the part where we correct sin and point believers toward obedience. For one to be a disciple, a follower of Christ, they must learn to love discipline. Oh, that's a hard thing to say. If you are to be a disciple of Christ, then you are to learn to love discipline. A Christian is disciplined through instruction and through correction. A Christian is disciplined through instruction and through correction. 
It is for this reason that there remains a century-old practice of referring both to, listen to these two words, formative discipline, discipline, formative discipline, and corrective discipline. Let's deal with the first. Formative discipline helps to form disciples through instruction. That's what's taking place right now, what took place this morning. This is a formative discipline taking place through the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Uh, this morning, many of us were disciplined, weren't we? Many of us heard this revelation. Many of us heard this false view of uh, how to approach revelation. And many of us, including myself, uh, this morning I hope that, that I didn't make any of you feel shamed by having on revelation i had the same that's why i was able to espouse it so easily because it's something that i held on to as well but we were corrected we were disciplined this morning through corrective discipline through the preaching and teaching of god's word now there's another kind of uh i'm sorry a formative through formative discipline there's another kind of discipline though and that is the corrective discipline uh, corrective discipline takes place through direct Rebuking of sin, if you will. This is more done personally. In terms of, in terms of, uh, church discipline, it is going to someone who you see is acting sinful or in living in a sinful manner and going to them and correcting them in their sin. So there's the formative that takes place through the preaching and teaching of the word. And then there's the corrective that's more personal. It's not done from here, although some pastors like to do it from here. It's meant to be done there personally. And the best way that someone, a pastor, can do those kind of corrective disciplines is when he knows the sheep. This morning, there was a, a, a dear couple who was saying that a person is leaving a church here in town. Uh, leaving the church because they had some questions and they couldn't even contact the main pastor and ask him some questions. I don't understand how a pastor can shepherd the sheep if he does not know the sheep. One of the ways that the pastor is able to help the sheep grow is by going to them and in certain times, correctively disciplining them. It's always meant to be in love. Church discipline, it's the act of removing, though, an individual from membership in the church and from the partic participation of the Lord's Supper. So there's the formative through teaching. There's the corrective personal but the final step is removing a person from membership, that's excommunication, and removing them from the Lord's Supper. Uh, they are not removed from the attending or gathering of the saints. If someone is in church discipline, we want them to continue to come to church. We don't say, you're not allowed to be with us. We want them to be here so that they can hear God's word. Excommunication, though, is that final step in church discipline. It is the church's public... This is important. What is excommunication? It is the church's public statement that it, she, can no longer affirm that person's profession of faith by calling him or her a Christian. When someone is in church discipline, when they are excommunicated, the church is essentially saying, we can no longer recognize their profession of faith. Are they truly saved? Maybe so. But from the church's vantage point, 
we cannot recognize salvation in them. That's important. They may still be saved. But from what we've seen, we can't affirm that they are truly saved. Because of the ways in which they have, most importantly, refused to repent of sin. If someone refuses to repent of sin, the church says, we don't recognize that as being uh, what a true believer does or looks like. True believers repent of sin. They don't continue in it. It is a refusal to welcome an unrepentant person to the Lord's Supper. When we call you to the Lord's Supper, we are calling all of us who in some way, shape or form, have sinned in some way, shape, or form. We, we all are guilt, guilty of sin. So we're not calling perfect people to the table. Rather, we are calling all of those who are bringing their sin and repentance to the table. But if someone is saying, I'm going to continue in my sin, I will not repent of it, then you're not welcome to the table. Who comes to the table? All of us who share in Christ. Well, the church says, I don't recognize you as being someone who shares in Christ because... You're not willing to repent of your sin. And only Christians repent of sin. Those who are not Christians don't repent of sin. So you're not welcome at this meal with us. The purpose of church discipline. There's three, uh, maybe five actually. Uh, First, discipline aims to expose sin. Yes, it aims to expose it. Why? So that it can be removed. And then what? So that right living can be restored. It's meant to expose, remove, and then restore. That's the same thing that we do. Uh, my, my little girl, uh, Selah, has a splinter in her back foot. What do we do when we see a splinter? We expose it. We pull it. We see it. We expose it. We get out under the skin. We pull it out. And then... It, we usually put some neosporin or, or a band-aid over it so that it can be restored. That's what we do when someone is in sin. We expose it, yes, so that the church can see we do not tolerate sin. And then what do we do? We remove the sin, repent of it. And then what do we do with the person? Kick them out? You're never allowed back? We restore them. We lovingly restore them. It's the, the model that Christ has laid down for us. Sin is a cancer. It loves to hide. Discipline exposes the cancer so that it can be cut out quickly and so that the person can be restored to good health. Secondly, discipline, or yeah, secondly, discipline, it aims to warn. It aims to warn. Again, it tells the church sin will not be tolerated. A church that does not enact God's retribution through discipline uh, will eventually find itself compromising to sin. Third, uh, sin or discipline aims to save. Churches pursue discipline when they see a member taking a path that leads to danger or death. And none of their pleading causes turns that person around. We are calling them to, to be saved. It's when we are saying, you're going in the wrong direction. If you go this way, you're going to die. The person refuses. That person will be placed under church discipline because we're intending to save, not to harm. It is uh, the device of the last resort, though. 
church discipline. It is the device of the last resort. Number four, uh, discipline aims to protect. Just as cancer spreads from one cell to another, so sin quickly, quickly spreads from one person to another if it is allowed in the church. Fifth, it aims to present a good witness for Christ. Uh, when we are serious about not allowing sin in the church, then it is a good witness to Christ and to the unbelieving world and also to the church within that says this church does not compromise. It does not allow sin to continue without it being addressed. That's important. Uh, why should church discipline be practiced? It is because the Lord, when he was on the earth, gave these instructions. Let's go to Matthew chapter 18. We'll go, we'll go back and forth from 1 Corinthians to Matthew chapter 18, actually. Matthew 18. I've got a lot to say, so I want to make sure I don't speak too quickly, uh, because these are important things to talk about. Matthew chapter 18. <clears throat> Listen to our Lord. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. That is the ideal uh, goal of church discipline. Someone sins, you go to him, they repent, it's over. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of, of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. This is a person who refuses to repent. If he listens to them, if, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it then to the church. See that step there? And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Uh, during our Q&A time, if you want to know what that scripture means, we'll go into that. But there's, we're not talking about that right now. That, that would be uh, fun for those of you who come from the same background as me. Jesus did not say, tell it to your friends. Or to meet with other church members and gossip about the manner, the matter. But... Tell it to the church collectively when they gather. This assumes membership meetings. This assumes that there is a time when the church gathers, and it could be on Lord's Day worship, but it assumes that there's a time when the church gathers to address certain issues like these. So, as we come to the matter presented for us here in the first letter to the church of Corinth, we are hearing not from a frustrated apostle, but rather, we are hearing from the Lord Jesus Christ who gives us remedies, who gives us a manner in which we are to handle church discipline. Therefore, church discipline, again, comes from Christ, not from some man. Some people may shy away from membership because they don't want to potentially deal with discipline. Fear that one day they might have to face discipline and, and be embarrassed. <clears throat> That's a wrong view of membership. It's a wrong view of discipline as well. Church discipline has not been instituted for by Christ for the detriment of the church, for the detriment of the people of God. But contrary, it's been instituted for the good of God's people, not for the bad. It's for our preservation. It's for our protection. There are, are borders and parameters in the church in order to keep us safe. Now, are there challenges that come with church discipline? Of course. But those challenges should never deter us from obeying what Christ has instituted for the good of his church. Uh, the biggest challenge is not what we potentially face if we practice church discipline. The biggest challenge is what we will no doubt face 
if we do not practice church discipline. It's not the challenge of uh, what we might, the kind of the trouble and drama that comes along with it, and we've experienced it here in the church. I think the greater challenge for us will be the sin of not obeying the commands of Christ. We will be judged by Christ for not obeying His command. We will be judged by Christ for dishonoring His Lordship over His church. Not my church, not Isaiah's church, Christ's church. He has given us as being stewards over His church. If we do not obey Christ's commands to practice church discipline, then we dishonor Christ. We pollute even our church with what Paul calls old leaven. If we do not obey this command to church discipline, we will do damage to the, to the souls that desperately need the rod of God to form church discipline, and we will also be unfaithful witnesses in the world. It's, it's a serious matter. So, uh, let's examine then this case here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and see how, how it was played out in the church of Corinth. Uh, Paul was writing to the church of Corinth from Ephesus. Uh, this is actually a, a first letter uh, that we have, but there's a letter that came before this. So this is actually 2 Corinthians, and, and what we have in 2 Corinthians is really 3 Corinthians. There are three letters that were written to Paul. We don't have the first. Or that were written by Paul, I should say. We don't have the first. It's been two years since Paul's first letter, and now Paul is writing to the church again in 1 Corinthians because he has received a report about them. Uh, let's see what this matter is. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1, verses 1 through 2. Yeah. Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, listen to this, with all the saints who are throughout Acacia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First point, and there'll be ten of them, they'll go quickly. Sometimes sin, even terrible sin, exists in a true church. Sometimes sin, even terrible sin, exists in a true church. Pop quiz. What was the most problematic church in all of the New Testament? Anybody know the answer? Anybody know the answer? You've got it, Bobby. The church of Corinth. <laughs> the church of Corinth was the most problematic church in all of the New Testament. It's most likely that pastors... Do not pray that their church will be more like the church of Corinth. That the church of Corinth is not the church that pastors want their church to most emulate. And yet, the Apostle Paul, with this truth, opens up his letter to the church of Corinth by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mind you, and he calls them the church of God. The church of God. Let's keep us, let's keep this at the forefront of our minds as we proceed through the rest of this sermon. This was not an apostate church. This was a church of God. It was a faithful and true church. It was not a heretical church. A lot of go, lot going on in, in Corinth, but not a, a heretical church. They were living by the word of God and still growing in their understanding. 
Now let's go to chapter 5, verse 1. Here's the church of God. And here's what was going on in that faithful true church. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you. And immorality, listen to this, such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, or another version says the pagans. Here's what the sin was. Someone has his father's wife. Or it would say a man has his father's wife. This was the sin that was going on. There was a flagrant sin that was taking place in the church of Corinth. It was a sin that would have even shocked the Gentiles. Those who would have seen, been seen as having no God. A man has his father's wife. How can this be the church of God? And yet in the midst of this church of God, there is a sin that is not even found among pagans. The answer is very simple. Being a Christian is not just about making a one-time decision. It's about a faith and a repentance that yield a whole new pattern of decisions. It is about submitting to Christ as Lord. God intends for his people to look different than the world. He intends for his people to, to have a, a war against sin and to live holy lives. That's repentance. Repentance, however, does not mean that the person automatically stops sinning in every area of their life. But it does mean the person has declared war against every sin in their life. It doesn't mean that they have stopped sinning. But it does mean that they have declared war against all of the sin in their life. In our midst, there are those who are presently warring against sin. And there are even those who have given up the battle. They have given in to sin. So then we must not be shocked when we learn that there is a person who has confessed, who has confessed Christ, who has also given up the battle to sin. This does not mean that because there is a sinner in the church, that this is not a true church or that that wasn't a true church. It also does not mean that the believer who sinned is not a true believer. That though in their sin, they are acting as an unbeliever, they may still yet be a true believer who for the moment has dropped their hands in defense or even in offense against sin. It happens to the best of fighters. What happened? How did you get knocked out? I dropped my hands. Are they still a great fighter? Yes. Just happened to put their hands down at the wrong moment. Secondly, we'll run through these quickly. A church commits sin when they tolerate sin. First uh, Corinthians five two, Paul says to them, "You have become arrogant, and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed will be removed from your midst." The church did not have a right biblical response to this man's sin. Rather than calling this man to repent, they allowed the sin to continue. Rather than mourning over his sin, they tolerated it. When the church does not call the sinner to repent, but allows sin to continue and, and even tolerate it as if it's okay, we're, we're tolerant here in this church. 
they become just as guilty as the one who sinned. We must never allow sin to continue and to grow among us, lest it pollute the church and stain the witness of Christ that we have been charged with in the world. What was the result? Number three, the church that does not call uh, someone to repentance must be rebuked. The church that does not call one to repentance, a sinner, must be rebuked. Let's go to verse 2 and then verse 6. For indeed in this house... Oh, second one, sorry. I'm in Second Corinthians. Let me go back over here. Verse 2. Uh, you have become arrogant, have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. Verse 6. Your boasting is no good. Do you not know... That a little, little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Uh, those of you who bake, leaven, I just learned this recently because my wife has been making cookies. Uh, leaven is also, it's, it's a yeast. Yeast is what causes dough to rise. All you need is just a little bit of yeast in order for dough to rise. And so it is with sin in the church. A little sin in the church that is tolerated, accepted, will cause the entire church to be negatively affected. The church cannot, must not tolerate sin. And the church that does tolerate sin must be rebuked. The church that allows sin to continue must be rebuked. Uh, the glaring stop signal must be waved in order to prevent Further damage in the church. Uh, it will not be just those who have sinned that will be affected. But also those who have not sinned. Who witness how serious the church uh, does or does not view sin. Someone is in sin. The elders know about it. But nobody has done anything about it. What kind of respect do you have for those who are in leadership if they're seeing sin? And let me just say to you, one of the most flagrant and consistent and common sins that's accepted in the church and never addressed by pastors, which should be preached from the pulpit, is gossip. It's one of those small little leavens that if allowed in the church, it causes people to, to look at one another negatively. It causes people to think, everybody's just talking about everybody in this church. Isn't that just a, a very basic principle of no in the church? We must not put the Lord God to the test. We must not take his grace for granted. We must not say about those who have sinned, well, let's just forgive them. Yes, we will forgive them when they repent. They must be corrected. And there must be repentance. If we take the matter lightly, we are not showing how seriously, listen to this, the death of Christ really was. If, if we treat sin as if sin is not a big deal then we show that the death of Christ was really not that big of a deal. An innocent man died for the sake of our sin. That's how heinous our sin is. That it would put an innocent man, the Holy One of God, on the cross. When we treat sin as if it is no big deal, we are saying, and neither is that. And neither is that. He died for sin. And when we look at sin and do not see that it cost Christ his life, then we do violence to the cross of Christ. Number four, 
the church must address address sin proactively. Uh, we've already read verse 2, but let's read 7 and 9. 7 and 9. Clean out, here's the proactive, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Paul's charge to the church is obey Christ. Remove this man from among you. Excommunicate him. He's been caught in sin. He's not repented of sin. Call the church together. This is, uh, call the church together is found in verse four and five. He says, when you are assembled and make a judgment of this unrepentant sinner, he's still among you. The person who has been doing this thing is still coming to the Lord's table. He's still functioning like a true believer, but his life is contrary to a true believer. Remove this cancer from among you. Paul was calling for members to have a meeting for the purpose of the church making a judgment on the unrepentant sinner and practicing church discipline. He says, deliver such a one over to Satan. That is, excommunicate him. Practice church discipline. Remove him. Uh, Those who are not in the church are not in Christ. They are showing by their unrepentant sin that they are actually in Satan. He says, so then give him over to his father. Give him over to his father. He's unrepenting in sin. Give him to his father. They were to treat this man like an outsider. Uh, They were to recognize that they did not recognize this as true Christianity. This is not what Christians do. It's what unbelievers do. So send him out with the unbelievers. They were not to keep company or to associate themselves with such a person. He says in verse 11, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat, that is speaking about Lord's Supper, not even to eat with such a person. You're coming to the table and the person who's behind you or the person in front of you is sleeping with his father's wife and they're coming to the same table. Paul says, don't eat with them. The apostle is not saying you can't spend time with these people. Yes, spend time with them. Encourage, I encourage you. Those who are, nobody in the church, praise be to God, our church is pure. Uh, uh, <laughs> We encourage you, though, when someone is in sin, spend time with them. Why? So that you can win them back to the Lord. So that you can restore them. You can encourage them to repent of sin. Yes. If we were simply hanging out with the person and never addressing the sin that they have committed, saying to them things like, hey, I love you. I don't have, I don't have anything to do with you, anything to do with that. It's none of my business. I'm not here to judge you. Uh, we run the risk of committing the same sin of the church of Corinth, tolerating sin. Things like, I'm not here to judge you. It's not none of my business. Are you a member of the church? Yes. Are they a member of the church? Yes. It's your business. When you were affirmed in this church as being a part of us, we said, your business is my business. My business is your business. Yes, it's my business. And we do so in a biblical manner. Paul says, in terms of associating, 
do not associate with yourself, associate yourself with that person at the Lord's table. Don't treat their sin like it doesn't exist. Don't say, yeah, come on to the Lord's table. Your sin doesn't matter. People who repent come to the table. People who don't repent are not allowed here. Verse 13, he says, but those who are, and this is important, those who are outside, God judges them. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. That's important. The outsiders, God judges them. The insiders, who has been given authority to judge those on the inside? The church has been given the authority to judge those on the inside. We don't judge the world. Why? God, God will judge them. The law is already against them. Now, what do we do with those who are in the church? We are calling, we are called to a certain standard of living. Well, who's going to keep us accountable to it? The elders and fellow members. If you're not living in a manner that is in step with, with being a follower of Christ, the world doesn't come to you and say, hey, you. The church does. And we as members don't say, well, who do you think you are? The church's members say, thank you, brother. You've waved the red stop sign in front of me because I was heading in a dangerous direction. Thank you for loving me enough to warn me. But then we don't go, now I got my eye on you, though. I'm going to wait till I find something out on you. I'm going I'm to be the one. I'll be the first one. There. I'll be the first one there. The church of Corinth was corrupted by the presence of sexual immorality that was unrepented of. They were not dealing with it properly. And in not dealing with it, they themselves were sinning and making it worse for themselves. Paul rebukes them, tells them what to do. Come together for the purpose of rendering a judgment on the guilty party. Once the judgment has been rendered, excommunicate the guilty one from among you. Now, what happened? Let's go to chapter or 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This Here's what happened. Two years later, the church does follow the uh, advice of Paul. This is important. Paul's giving them a command, but the church must obey it. Number five. The Corinthians enacted judgment on the guilty sinner. This is verses one through six. Uh, we'll read it. But I determined for this, for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I caused you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one who I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote to you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you, all that my joy would be the full of all of you. The joy would be the joy of all of you. Verse 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Paul's saying, when I wrote to you, I was crying when I was writing to you. Uh, so that you would not be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. <clears throat> Verse 5. But if any has caused sorrow... He has caused sorrow, not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. Here it is. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority. Paul's addressing the issue from the last book, the last letter. Church of Corinth obeyed the scriptures. They ultimately removed this man from their midst. They practiced church discipline. 
they assembled, they called for a resolution, they voted, and the man was excommunicated. How do we know all that? We make educated assumptions based upon the text and the language that is confirmed by other passages. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 6, he says, Sufficient for the one is this punishment which was inflicted by who? The majority. What does that mean? There's a majority and there is a minority. The punishment was inflicted by the majority. This indicates that there was some kind of vote. And the majority overwhelmingly won in terms of what they should do with this sinful man. So what happens? <clears throat> Verse or Number six. The church insisted on an unreasonable debt from the disciplined man unreasonable debt from the disciplined man look at this verse uh, seven so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow the man was disciplined the church inflicted sorrow upon the man which is it's it's proper if someone is in sin there should be sorrow over their sin the man did feel sorrow over his sin the apostle states that the sorrow is ultimately not going to affect him, but rather it was going to affect all of them. Now, what sorrow? <clears throat> the sorrow that has come from the man who was in sin. Again, they enacted church discipline. It produced in him sorrow. Paul talks about in Corinthians the difference between two kinds, two kinds of sorrow. There's a worldly sorrow being caught in sin. And then there's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. This man was disciplined. And his sorrow was a godly one. For this man repented. But the church would not accept this man's repentance. This man had a right godly sorrow toward his sin... But the church would not reaffirm their love for him. No, 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 no. You can't come back. The sin that you've committed, there's no coming back from that sin. The people were requesting too much from him. They were too hard on him. They almost wanted him to be crucified in order to pay for his sin. When church discipline is practiced, our ultimate goal is restoration that we might see believers return to Christ in right fellowship. Number seven. Church discipline can sometimes drag on unnecessarily. This is what was happening here. Who's Paul's focus in the first letter? It's the man and the church acting a discipline on the man. Who's Paul's focus in the second letter? It's the church receiving the man back. It's kind of the tables have been turned. In the first letter, it was about this man and his sin and the church doing something about it. In the second letter, it was about the church not receiving this man's forgiveness. Between the first and second letter, there are two years that have passed. Now, the church of Corinth uh, and during that time was not like Reformation Bible Church in Bakersfield today. Uh, Oh, be careful. I almost said something I shouldn't have said. Uh, if someone 
does not have a good experience here. There's about uh, 75,000 churches they can go to in Bakersfield. And, and most people will not know what, have ha- what has happened in this church. They'll just go to another church, blend in, everything's fine. Corinth wasn't like that. If a man is caught in sin, it's not like he can go to the other Reformed church down the street. There was one church. It's not like he could just relocate and go to Ephesus. The only church that's there has called him to repent of sin. He's repented of sin. And the only church that's there won't receive him back. And he's a true believer. It was a tremendous amount of sorrow. And this discipline dragged on much longer than it needed to. Because it took the second letter of Paul that came two years later. For the church to finally receive this man back into the church. Number eight. Removal of church discipline constitutes a reaffirmation of love. Verse 8, Paul says, Wherefore I urge you, reaffirm your love for him. How, th- this is, this is the, the removal of church discipline. When we say, we receive, we see that it is true repentance that you're offering, and we receive you back into our fold. Come and fellowship with us at the Lord's table. Uh, what do we do? When, when someone is caught, do we, someone is caught in sin, do we simply sweep it under the rug and act like it's never happened? No. But that's what Corinth did. They called the church together, presented the issue, took a vote, enacted judgment, and he was excommunicated. Over time, he showed godly sorrow. They were urged to reaffirm their love for him, but more importantly, they were urged to reaffirm his confession of faith. We love you, yes, but the next step is, and we recognize you as being a true believer. That means a lot. That is ultimately our role. It's our responsibility. Not just to say that we love you, but more importantly, that we who have been given authority to authorize true judgments on non-believers and true believers make the judgment that you are truly one of us by your confession of faith and by the fruit that is produced thereof. Number nine. The removal of church discipline is a test of obedience and must involve full forgiveness. If someone is removed... Oh, let's go to verse 9. Verse 9 and 10. For to this end also I write, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things, but one whom you forgive... Um, but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Were they going to obey? That was the test. Were they going to obey the command of Christ and operate in the manner that Christ calls the church to operate? Were they going to use the keys of the kingdom properly? If they were going to forgive, they must forgive. If someone was restored after being caught in sin, you forgive them. And you forgive them completely. Uh, An example of not forgiving someone is bringing up to them their offense every time that you are emotional about something. Or 
singing them, receiving them back, but keeping your distance from them. That's not really forgiveness. That's not really welcoming them back into the fold. Praise be to God, we have not experienced any of that here yet. Lord willing, we never will. But it's important for us to know as we go forward. Last but not least, uh, number 10. When there is not full forgiveness, a door for Satan to come in. Satan wants to destroy the church of Christ. He will use any advantage to create division in the church. And when we are not people of the book, we become allies of Satan in his attempt to destroy the church. We become his allies. Think about just the language there. Verse 11. So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. There it is. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. Let's not be his assistants. Let us rejoice that Christ has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And if we know what we are called and commanded to do, then let us follow our Christ. Oh, yeah. In a manner that he has called us to live and to glorify him in the church. Now, to conclude, what might we say that has not already been said? When it comes comes to church discipline, this is important. There is an in, quotation, in the body, and there is an out, quotation, in the body. We have in this church, we've recognized by hearing people's con, uh, confessions or their testimonies, we hear them and we say, you're in. Well, what are we hearing when we hear a testimony? We're hearing someone who knows the gospel. Someone who believes the gospel. And we've seen and been around them for a certain time. By the fruit that we've seen in their lives, by the confession of their faith, we say to them, Collectively, you are in. We affirm you as being in Christ. The Bible makes it clear that there are those who are members of the body of Christ and those who are outsiders, those who are not a part of the body. If a congregation does not understand this, the idea of putting someone out will sound ridiculous. It may even sound uh, unbiblical and legalistic. How do you put someone out? You have no authority to put someone out. Well, Actually, we do. For some, the idea of declaring that a person, a professor of faith, is not actually a true believer, it strikes uncomfortable fear in the hearts of some because of the age-old cliche, I don't know your heart. You do know their heart. You first see their heart in action. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when someone gives a confession and it doesn't sound like the true gospel, what are you to say to them? Ah, that's okay. No. Teach them the gospel. Teach them what it means to have a true testimony. What's a true testimony and what's not? We had a members meeting years ago. I think I can say this. It's far enough removed, Bobby. Uh, where the person came up and, and as they were giving their testimony uh, to be received in the church, they said... Uh, I don't know what to say. I'm really, I haven't done anything bad. Well, you have done something bad. You fundamentally misunderstand and don't understand that you are an Adam. Uh, you are as wretched as wretched can be. You need grace 
the same grace that a murderer on death row needs, so do you, because you both are in Adam. Do you see that out of the abundance of the heart, the person is saying, I don't feel like I'm really guilty of anything. Well, then we don't recognize that as being a true confession or a true testimony because we are all guilty of sin. Does that make sense? Church membership is not like a club or some other voluntary, voluntary organization. It's about citizenship in a kingdom in which we are affirmed and recognized as ambassadors of Christ. And the church is to be kind of an embassy. The local church is to be an embassy where we represent Christ. We don't get to declare about ourselves. I belong to Christ. I hope you do. We don't get to baptize ourselves. We don't get to give ourselves the Lord's Supper. All of this has been given to us by Christ. And it's to be practiced in the context of the local church. Of the embassy, if you will. When we become members, we submit to the oversight of the church. We don't have the authority to resign our membership when we are threatened with church discipline. Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. I'm out of here. <laughs> People join a church by the authority of a church. And they exit a church by the authority of a church. Uh, what should be the, the manner in which a church receives someone into the church? By hearing a credible profession of faith. By hearing, uh, Brother Javier shared with me and Norma, that in another church in Bakersfield, the Falls Church, that one of the processes that they go through when, when receiving someone into their church is they give them a personality test. I'm glad all of your heads went back and, and you're like, what in the world does that mean? They give them a personality test to see where they fit in in the church. That's not the criteria of whether or not you are accepted into a church. That's not a part of membership. That's false church activity. It's pagan. Whoever you are, whatever you are, come join the church and Christ will fit you perfectly into where you belong. Practice the one another's of the church that God has given to us. And be a blessing to the church. That's it. We don't have the authority to make ourselves members. People join the church by the authority of the church and they exit the church by the authority of the church. We don't get to just say, I'm out of here. The church will dismiss you. The church does that. You might already, you might leave, yes, of your own fruition. But the church will determine whether or not we recognize you as being a true believer because of whatever reason that you left. That's a, a, a biblical way of, of leaving. That's a wrong way of living. The church will make that determination. And we submit ourselves to that. It's good for us. Congregations need to understand that part of being a disciple of Christ is knowing how to be corrected. And taught by other disciples of Christ. Your elders are constantly encouraging members to build relationships with, with one another. Where correction and instruction are normal. Build relationships with each other. We're correction and instruction. It's normal. When was the last time that you were correct, corrected by a member and didn't get offended, but accepted it in love? You're right, brother. You're right, sister. I accept that. I appreciate that. And, and don't walk away with your heart beating fast and kind of upset and mad at them. Just saying, yeah, I appreciate the fact that I was corrected. I needed it. Or when did you have the courage to go and correct someone? 
and not wait, I hope somebody else sees it because I sure do, then, then do something about it. If you love them, then go to them in love. Jesus says, if you go to them and they hear you, then you've won your brother. That's the goal. It's not to offend. It's to win. And as we've said before to many of the men, we need to be uh, quick not to offend and not so quickly offended. Receive whatever comes from fellow brothers and sisters out of love. A gospel-grounded individual learns to invite correction and also learns to tenderly give it as well. Invite correction and tenderly give correction as well. When this is normal in the church, church discipline is easier and it makes more sense. When it's not present, church discipline almost seems like it's coming out of nowhere. Where's this coming from? (laughs) We are prone to deception though, aren't we? That's why the apostle warns us again and again and again. Do not be deceived. Let no one deceive who? Himself. Evil imposters, evil people will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's easy to say we have no sin. And when we do so, we deceive ourselves. We are prone to self-deception. We are prone to self-righteousness. Therefore, when someone sees something in us that's going in that direction, please say to them, please, if you see something in me, I am inviting you to discipline. I'm inviting you to correcting me. We should welcome rebukes. You know that when you're rebuked and you receive it, uh, if you're thinking about video games and your strength as a video game player, I I don't know, I got nerdy for a second. Uh, You grow in strength because you're learning to become more humble. Allowing someone to correct you and you receive it causes you to grow in humility. And who was the most humble that we are seeking to be like? Christ. Someone who can never accept any kind of correction doesn't desire to be like Christ. When was the last time that you did not deceive yourself? Believing that you had the right answer and then someone brought to you a better answer. And you said, thank you for correcting me in my thinking or in my right, wrong theology. And you really meant it. Sometimes we are so quick to have our minds made up on certain things that we're wrong about. Let us be open and humble to allow ourselves to be taught, to be willing and open to be discipled. The local church exists to protect us from ourselves. I shouldn't say ultimately and finally, but one of the reasons why the church exists is to protect ourselves from ourselves. We all have blind spots. We are all easily self-deceived. But when we are opening up ourselves to discipline, when we're opening up ourselves to be corrected by the saints, we grow. Brothers and sisters, that's the true expression, one of the true expressions of loving one another. We must not view love as this idea that we are uh, never able to confront one another because we love each other. That's not love. That's false love. Let's remember 
that we've been given to a church, we've been given for the purpose of oversight so that we together may stay off of unbeaten paths and together march toward the gates of heaven unto glory. Let's pray.